Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode how catwalks and trade unionism make london fashion week a big success and has british theater been hit so hard by covid there's no future and what's the trade union response to that Oh, hello, hello, hello. You're very welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and in this episode, we're getting all creative. Yes! It's London Fashion Week, and we're going to hear from Jamie Bryars, the National Industrial Organiser of Performance Union Equity, about what the relationship is between the fashion industry and his union. Staying with a creative theme, we're then going to turn our attention to the British theatre sector and the existential threat. It really is an existential threat that it faces. And we ask, what's the trade union response? First, London Fashion Week. Let's turn our attention to the catwalk. Well, London Fashion Week is one of the main fashion events in the world's annual fashion calendar. Now, it's not you know, a load of some stick thing models walking down a catwalk in a converted church in Hackney somewhere. It's actually a, a big, big deal. 80 designers, 40 women's wear, 15 men's wear, 20 doing men's and women's wear, five accessory brands, 50 digital only activations as these exhibitions or shows are called 20 physical and digital 10 physical only and interestingly the british fashion council uh, who host the event have made it very clear that this is a gender neutral showcase uh, have said that at this point in time there's a necessity to look at the future of london fashion week and the opportunity to drive change collaborate and innovate in ways that will establish long-term benefits develop new sustainable business models and boost the industry's economic and social power yeah yeah and that business body would say that wouldn't they but this is you know this is not a a small industry a small sector according to oxford economics in 2019, it contributed 35 billion quid to the UK economy and employs nearly 900,000 people. So, a big deal. But what's the union input? Why does union engagement with the British Fashion Council and London Fashion Week make it the success that it undoubtedly is? That was the starting point for my discussion with Jamie Bryars, who, as I say, is the National Industrial Organiser for the Performers Union Equity. Jamie, thank you very much for joining us on the uh, Union Jews podcast. Great, great pleasure to have your company. Thank you. One of the things that, that we've got coming up in London's calendar, even though it's stripped down by COVID, is, is London Fashion Week still going on, albeit in a slightly strange and unusual usual format. Uh, but I imagine actually that's a, a key area of concern for you in terms of the work Oakley does organising and looking after catwalk models and, and the people who support that function. Indeed, as, and, and I suppose our approach would be the same to any other group of, of workers that we organise returning to work at the moment, uh, ensuring that 
where possible that activity can take place. Many of our members are unable to be furloughed because of the nature of their contracts. Many of them fall through the the many uh, various gaps in the self-employed income protection scheme. So getting them back to work is really important, but it's important that that's done in a safe and secure way. And is the is the picture with this group of workers, as it is with many groups of workers, that particularly because of the coronavirus pandemic, there is a, an accentuated sense of vulnerability and a need and a desire to look to the union for support and guidance? Yeah, I, I think they are a precarious group of workers in normal times and, and ripe for exploitation and very often asked to work in conditions which simply aren't acceptable. That sort of in their need to get back to work for the reasons I've said, there is a danger and a risk that those uh, those members of ours do expose themselves or, or, or there's pressure applied to them to expose themselves to, to things which aren't acceptable. And we have had a number of a number of members contact us, not necessarily about London Fashion Week exclusively, but about some practices in the modelling world which are which are being questioned. That there, there is guidance in place, which which has been drawn up between the British Fashion Council, between the British Model Fashions Agency Association, which we fed into to make sure that where castings where where sessions casting sessions take place, that they are as COVID secure as can be. Are the employers therefore responsive to the concerns that you're expressing on behalf of, of your members, or is it sometimes a real struggle to push the, the door open? They're, they're responsive to, to an extent, but of course, you know, their, their priority is so often what drives them, which is getting the shows up and running, getting the content made in order to make money. And there's obviously a tension between their priority and their desire to make that happen and what might be seen as obstacles put in the way of that. Of course, what nobody wants and is, and is in nobody's interest is for there to be further rate breaks, for there to, there to be problems on set uh, in studios, at fashion houses, which, you know, have longer term implications. Indeed, I mean, but the equity has an agreement with the British Fashion Council, I think it is, isn't it? Was that was that hard fought and hard come by, or actually was there a meeting of minds, as one would always hope for, from progressive or, or aware employers? Yeah, I mean, you know, like so many trade unionists and and their achievements, that they're they're harder fought for than ideally we would would be necessary. But we didn't have to go through what would have been a challenging and laborious process of recognition, the British Fashion Council did coalesce, did recognise the need for there to be some standardisation of terms, not just in terms of the financial elements uh, to to ensure that there, there wasn't financial exploitation, but also in terms of things like health and safety, what rights are secured for the payments, things like creating safe spaces, protecting models from harassment and those sorts of issues. So I think there was a, you know, a willingness to, to work with the union to come up with an agreement which set to, to put in some, some standards for those engaging our members to, com- to comply with. And to what extent is the sector organised from an employer point of view? Is the British Fashion Council a body that actually has really good membership buy-in and therefore is able to effectively uh, represent employers and therefore be a reliable negotiating partner? Or actually, is that is the British Fashion Council almost like an elite body and there's lots more numerically of people who are outside their ambit? I, I think it's a combination of both things, but there, there's also the additional, uh, I suppose, complication for, for our members when it comes to working in, in fashion, which is 
is the the chain of command and who is actually the legal personality engaging our member. Uh, Agents have a very, very important role to play and there are some very, very good agents out there who we've relied on to, to work with us to deliver the agreement with the British uh, Freshman Council. But the, the longer that chain is, the more potential there is for exploitation, the more difficult it is to, to try and identify the solution to it. Yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, I know that the union's got a great record of collaborating uh, with other organisations, uh, both in the wider labour movement, but in the in the industries in which your members work. Are there other sympathetic uh, organisations within the, the fashion sector? Sure, and the, the, the one I would refer to is the the BMFA, the, the British Model Fashion Agency Association. Who, as I say, we we do meet with on a regular basis. They represent the, I suppose, the organised agents, those that that represent um, huge numbers of uh, models. And indeed, they were quite keen for for us to get involved. I think historically they had sought to protect the terms and conditions collectively on behalf of their individual clients. Um, but as we know, competition law doesn't make that straightforward without a process of formal recognition through a trade union. So we were very happy to, to work with the association in order to come up with, with what the priorities were for our members and their clients. From the way you're talking, it sounds like there's quite a balance amongst models between the very individualistic, necessarily individualistic nature of their work but a recognition that there's much to be gained from a collective voice on behalf of their their, their profession. Do you sense that the, the individualism and therefore the potential for exploitation that that represents is being eclipsed by a, a, a wider recognition that it's good to have a collective voice on things that affect all models? I think that's a direction I travel, but it's it, there, there is a there is a tension there between you know what it what it means and what it takes to get involved in an organisation like Equity to build a collective voice, and the individual pressures which are applied to them whilst they are building and trying to sustain their careers. You know, it's it's often in the engagers' interest to set model against model. And, and I suppose what we see our role is, is to try and bring them together where we can to speak on their behalf with the collective voice. So, Jamie, I understand that I understand that there is a, a, an appetite for collective voice, particularly at the, at the present time. But what other membership benefits have, have you found appeal to, to the modelling community? What's being part of the collective does, and, and indeed it's, it's an important reason why models you know, our, our members of equity is it enables us to provide a suite of services to to support them in their sort of portfolio careers, whether that's some of the insurances that we provide. And there are some specific ones for models like facial disfiguration insurance, mm-hmm. personal injury insurance, public liability insurance, uh, and so on. But I suppose a big part of the offer for models and, and a lot of the work that I do on behalf of models is in terms of Sort of legal protection when they work and they don't get paid or when when their images have been used beyond the initial rights usage period that's that's work that the union does on behalf of individual model members when those situations arise and then we provide advice and guidance on a whole range of issues you know ranging from bullying and harassment through to tax and national insurance for freelance workers through to what should an agency agreement contain? And of course, those things are, are very important, very important to, to models. 
often before they've found their first job, they've had to find an agent. And that can, that can be where the problems um, start yes, yeah. if, if the advice isn't taken at, at, at that stage. Well, that, I, I mean, that, that all sounds like a very a valuable and, un, and, and unique package. And I suppose the advantage of, of, of using a network to, org- to organize and, and service is that the experiences of people in the network can be pooled and therefore the common, the common knowledge, as it were, and the confidence in the services that are provided uh, gr- grows and increases. That's right. And, and of course, they inform, you know, they, they can inform the services that are needed by, by, by the models, you know, like, like everything we do as a union, it starts with our members somewhere. Uh, and it generally starts with them coming together, saying that there's a problem and the union has a role uh, and the members within the union have a role in trying to fix it, whether it is those collective terms and conditions, whether it is the services that, that we provide. You know, each of those things at somewhere starts with one of our members joining together with others to say, these are the issues we're facing. These yeah. are the problems we have. How can we come come together to try and fix them? Absolutely. And that, that is a valuable additional resource that, that it almost grows organically within the network and is available to the members of the union. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. And, and as I say, whilst we, we represent different groups of creative or cultural workers, uh, and, and they all have their individual and own, own needs, being part of something bigger enables them to benefit, you know, so much more than if they're organized, self-organized as smaller independent groups. Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in the way in which all equity organises, because it's not just models, it's comedians and clowns and all those. You have a, a, a network, a, a sort of occupation-based uh, network for particular professions. How does how does that work in, in practice? Yeah, I mean, the, the development of the union's networks is a relatively new phenomena. Traditionally, we have organised geographically through our branches, but that hasn't always provided either the the appropriate platform for each uh, constituent, each profession within our membership, but also one of the biggest benefits of sort of the less formal structures of the networks is that they can be more dynamic. They're not always tied down in the usual union bureaucracy around rules, minutes of meetings, agendas. They can respond very, very quickly to the issues at hand. And, you know, because they are more dynamic, they can expand very, very quickly when there is a need, but they can also contract. They don't have to have a presence, you know, every day. They can grow and they can uh, apply pressure and be very active when there is an issue. But when people are busy, there, there isn't that sort of core function that needs to be filled. If one's looking at the negotiating agenda then in terms of the, the fashion sector and in terms of the equity members in that fashion sector, what's kind of on the horizon in terms of what the union aspires for them? Sure. Well, um, I suppose we would start with, with money. You know, in, in any fiercely competitive industry, there is always a downwards pressure on fees. In addition to that, I think, you know, we have to recognise that the fashion industry and fashion ha- fashion houses encompasses a whole range of types, levels of scale of, uh, of fashion house. And I suppose what our priority is, is to try and secure minimum terms and conditions, which reflect the ability of those fashion houses to pay. So we don't just migrate down to the lowest common denominator, but those that can afford to pay more, you know, we have a structure which 
which encourages and secures better terms and conditions with those producers. Other things which aren't financial, as I say, like the provision of secure dressing room, good codes of conduct around nudity, clear terms in terms of what rights are being bought can apply more equally across the board. So I suppose that's the approach we've taken with the British Fashion Council is, is to say, in terms of money, you know, negotiating rates which reflect the ability of the fashion house to pay, but where those terms can uh, apply equally across on things like protection from harassment, that's what we seek to do. It seems to me that, that employers probably rely more than they might like to uh, admit on the knowledge and the services that equity provides. I'm thinking of the industry information service that the union run, runs, for example. Is that true across the sectors that the union uh, organises? I think the employers will tend to rely on their associations, although you know that can be quite fluid and we do have a lot of direct contact with employers across the sectors that we organise in. I suppose the organisations which benefit from the service you refer to are things like the agents. It's really important that we have a strong and reliable partnership with agents across each of those sectors. And it's important that they're aware of what our aspirations are. And it's important that, you know, they broadly support the efforts of the union, which are designed to, I suppose, provide the, the sound and solid basis for which they can then uh, go and negotiate, you know, over and above. I know that on your patch, Jamie, you have many sometimes competing interests and the the fashion sector is just one part of it. As you look around your patch, what else is uh, occupying your your time at the moment? Yeah, so in in terms of my portfolio, the the sort of the the sectors that I look after, yeah, you're right to say that organising models is just a a small part of it. And I think one of the things we would all like is an additional resource, you know, to, to be able to to organise more effectively in that sector. Other areas that I currently organise in are commercial theatre outside of London for performers and stage management. The subsidised sector across the UK, we have regional officials in, in the English regions and the nations who support that work, but also theatre directors and, and, and theatre designers, whether they be set, costume, lighting, uh, sound and so on. My goodness, I mean, that, that must be, I mean, that is a very exposed sector at the moment isn't it are there any glimmers of, of hope of, of of good news we've all heard about some very well established theatres in the provinces closing their doors doors for good which of course increases unemployment amongst your members you know, limits employment opportunities uh, as well but are are there some prospects for recovery or stabilisation, even though the, we're a long way from the end of, of the COVID situation? Well, there is a chance and there is, and, and there is hope, but there are things that we are asking for and, and we expect which will help the, the sector to recover. And we have a, f- a clear four-point plan for recovery, which, which includes uh, a safe opening subsidy, the protection of uh, infrastructure, um, uh, the, the importance of equalities to make sure that there is no rollback on some of the gains that have been made in recent years and then and, and also workforce protection. You know, we've made that case very loudly and clearly to, to the government 
What's clear is that the longer this goes on, the more difficult it is for the sector to recover. I think when theatres went dark back on March the 16th, there was a sense that by September everything would be up and running again. As things like uh, the furlough scheme ends and theatres are forced into making the very difficult decisions that lots of the parts of the economy are having to make as those schemes are wound up and making redundancies, that makes the whole process of starting again so much more difficult. The sector that I lead on, the commercial touring sector, is a, is a case in point where trying to schedule a tour, even if you're trying to schedule a tour for 2021, that becomes much more difficult if you do not know what theatres are going to exist in order to receive work, but also what does their internal infrastructure look like in terms of staffing in order to be prepared to receive. So, you know, that's why we have been very clear on the need for things like extension to the furlough scheme, extensions to the self-employed income support scheme, proper investment in that infrastructure to, to make sure that that as soon as it's safe to do so, that the industry can get back on its feet. I was aware that some productions that traditionally have played in small venues are moving into larger venues because they can then fit more people in, but then the, the, the size of the venue means that they can be spaced out. Uh, the Musical Six, for example, is something that I read about just the other day. It, it's doing is doing that. So I suppose that there is an opportunity to innovate, I suppose, and to look for solutions if people are willing to to, to pick them up and find them. Correct. And, and I suppose that's where, that's going back to your question, you know, where, where is the hope? It is in, in things like, things like that. What, you know, what perhaps historically things have been seen as, as a as a weakness they can provide an pr- provide an opportunity and it is good seeing producers come together to think about creative ways of getting their work back on so if if six the musical which usually plays to a 300 seater capacity can move into a into a bigger space play to similar or slightly higher audiences but on a socially distanced model then then, then that has to be a good thing we've also seen some open air producers, and I'm thinking of Regent's Park, for example. Mm, you know, they mm. they have been presenting a, a a version of Jesus Christ Superstar again on a on a socially distanced model, and I, and I think that you know that does give hope. I visited the Jesus Christ Superstar company a couple of weeks ago uh, before one of their evening performances. They they felt very privileged to be the trailblazers, people who were back at work doing what they were doing. The production company had taken all the necessary precautions that we would expect to ensure that that work can take place in as safe and as secure environment as possible. And I think, you know, the, the, the whole industry recognises and welcomes that. Well, that, that must be um, a very welcome relief when that sort of meeting of minds and meeting of practicalities comes together because there's no, there can be no doubt it must have been a rough, a rough period of time for, for your members and for, for you as, as officers looking, looking after them. So I suppose our worry, our worry is that, that as things like the self-employed income support scheme are removed or have been removed, that finished at the end of August, the furlough scheme ends next month. The pressure to take risks in terms of health and safety becomes greater. And we, we have to be very mindful of that. And we will continue to lobby uh, for, for those four pillars um, to ensure that, that, you know, there is a time where our members can, t- can return to work and that won't be in the too distant future. 
let's hope not. If, if, if listeners, whether they're members of equity, whether they're fellow trade unionists, whether, whether they're, they're not actively involved with their unions at all, but if people want to support the Four Pillars campaign, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, we, we do have a petition, a government petition on our website, uh, a link, link to it on our website, www.equity.org.uk, which gives more details about that campaign, you know, more details about what the four pillars are, but also there's a petition, uh, uh to sign. I think at last count that had around about 20,000, uh, signatures. There is likely to be some more public lobbying activity, uh, partnering with our sister union, Bektu and other campaigning organizations which have emerged. Uh, during the crisis towards the end of us, end of September, uh, again, focused on those things that we think will lead to the safest, secure uh, and best recovery for the industry. Excellent. Well, you know, listeners, you know where to go. Jamie's just signposted that for, for you. Please do sign the petition and support equity and sister unions in, in what they do to make sure that the cultural lifeblood of, of the country doesn't really stay frozen for, forever and gets back onto a, a vibrant and safe footing as soon as possible. Jamie, thank you very much indeed for spending time, time with us and best of luck in the campaigns going forward. Thank you, Simon. Well, my thanks to Jamie for spending time with us, giving us a real, really kind of interesting overview and tour around the, the creative space that he works in and that his members work in and potential members work in. I mean, it's easy to be a bit glib and dismissive and to think of it as a marginal space, but the sums of money and the numbers employed are really, really significant. And I mean, one thing's for sure, and that is we would miss the level of theatrical space, the contribution that makes to the life and our society, our society generally, if it wasn't there. So the campaign that Jamie highlighted is, is really important. And just a reminder that if you put into Google or a search engine equity four pillar plan, it will take you to the campaign page where there are lots of resources. You get to sign the petition, make a submission to the chancellor's overview of spending and so on. Not to be confused with other campaigns recently that have gone under the title of four pillars, of course. Second thing to take out of that discussion with Jamie that, that really struck me in a bizarre sort of way, I think, is the range of specialist services that only unions can provide or that unions can best provide. Jamie, almost in passing, mentioned the facial disfigurement insurance that the union has negotiated for its members who work in, in, in the fashion industry. Clearly, yeah, really important, really important, but, but very kind of niche, you, you, you might say. I mean, in my trade union career, I've come across lots of kind of specialist insurance or support services, um, protective clothing of a particular nature, for example, for people who work in abattoirs, um, death and service benefits for people involved in escorting nuclear convoys around the country in, in, at the back end of the last century, all sorts of th things. What's your most interesting or most niche member service? that you've encountered or that you've negotiated or that you've benefited from. You can email us at unionjews.com, tweet us at Jews Union. Love to hear your news and your input on that one. So there's the campaigning work, there's the specialist services. The other thing I took away from the conversation with Jamie was about equities organising strategy and the structures they have. And in particular, the use of networks to both organise and service and get a better understanding of what members and potential members in that sector uh, need. Now, if you look at the equity website, you'll see that they have some networks that you, you, you know, in ignorance, you might kind of raise your eyebrow at. Like there's the burlesque network, the circus network, the comedians network, the dance network, the models network, the puppeteers network. And you kind of think, oh, these, that's kind of bizarre in, in a way, isn't it? But it's not, is it? It makes absolute 
sense that if you want to understand what your members and potential members need and value and what engages them, what their priorities are, you have to find a way of bringing them together, which isn't kind of onerous and heavy and bureaucracy driven, but is a a forum, a viable, valuable forum that interconnects with the rest of the union's structures. And, you know, these people are exposed often. They are, they're working in isolated and isolating ways. You know, they haven't got a desk or a laptop to kind of shield them. And the the industry is very precarious and therefore anything that takes you out of circulation can have a very direct detrimental effect on on your life so it's quite right that you use a flexible but nevertheless quite robust resource such as networks to try and build solidarity build organization make sure the services you're operating are accurate and are the right ones for for the audience in question of course the trick comes in making sure the relationship between the network or the advisory group or the working party or whatever label you want to use, the relationship between that body and the decision and democratically accountable structures of any union are right. And that's sometimes where problems arise. I I mean, I'm not privy to the ins and outs of equities internal politics, but it looks like a good, robust structure to me. And then finally, What shines through from the discussion I had with Jamie is that, especially in the fashion sector, there is an appetite. There is an appetite for collective voice. People see that there is a need, a value, that it's appropriate to say, you know what? We may all be self-employed. We may be individualistic. We may be in competition for each other. But there are some things that affect us all. There is an umbrella under which we all sit and need to sit. And I think that that increasing appetite for collective voice is something that we've seen across industrial sectors increasingly and accentuated particularly by the COVID crisis. So it's really interesting to have a case study there of that how that appetite expresses itself in a particular section, which is not usually associated with unionism like fashion. If you want to know more about the things that we've discussed on this podcast, a number of sources, they're all detailed and signposted in the blog that accompanies this podcast, which you can find on the makesyouthink.com site. But just to run through them briefly here, uh, equity are at equity.org.uk. Therefore, all the things that Jamie was talking about, about the services they provide, you can, you can find, you can find there. If you're interested in some of the other stuff that Equity does on behalf of its members, then Equity Young Members have their own podcast series. If you search Equity Young Members podcast on the search engine of your choice, that will take you there. And also, last year, Becky Wright uh, of Unions 21 and I recorded a discussion with Charlotte Bentz of Equity about their low-pay, no-pay campaign. Now, this is on behalf of Equity members who, I mean, they don't get the national minimum wage often. They don't get the national living wage. They just don't, don't get paid for the work they do. And Charlotte gives a really good explanation of the tactics and the objectives of the campaign that they're running there. And you can find that on the Unions 21 site. That's unions21.org.uk. British Fashion Council have also just completed their first series of podcasts as well. Some very interesting titles such as British Fashion, Music and Brand Building, Fashion, Football and Creative Expression. And then things that play more into a kind of trade union agenda, things that you'd find on probably a collective bargaining agenda as well, such as diversity and change in the industry, fashion tech and positive change, finding a voice through fashion design, what now for the fashion student, waking up to racism in the fashion industry breaking boundaries in the fashion I- industry so probably worth uh, having a look at not not i've got to say british fashion council your podcasts are not that easy to find they're in the blog section of the british fashion council website that's britishfashioncouncil.co.uk forward slash blog 
Well, that's just about it for this episode of the Evening Juice podcast. Thank you so much for your company and spending time with us over the last half hour or so. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. I hope it's uh, made you think. Perhaps if it has and you've got any comments, any insights, any contributions to the debate, you can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. We'd love to hear your views, have your contributions, your suggestions for what should be on future episodes. It would also be great if you could rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice, because that really does make a difference to the reach of the show. In our next episode, we're going to pick up some of the themes we covered in this episode and particularly look at freelancers and the increasing appetite for collective voice amongst people who are self-employed or who are in very disparate or precarious employment conditions. And we've got a galaxy of contributors to that from Beck2, from the NUJ, from Community, from the Creators Union. It's going to be a real feast for the ear, so I hope you can join us. My customary shout out to my fellow podcasters in the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a collection of 70 trade union related podcasts that you can access at labourradio.org. Don't forget, too, that you can read the companion blog to this podcast at the makesyouthink.com site. Until next time, whatever you do, please stay well, stay safe, and I'll see you around. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.